Blog Talk Radio. tell real stories of addiction and recovery. Well, here's a question that many newcomers to recovery ask themselves. If I can't enjoy my favorite beverage, what on earth will I drink? And then the questions just keep coming. What do I order at dinner? How do I discreetly refuse when someone offers to buy me a drink? What do I bring along to a party? And what if a server accidentally brings me a drink with alcohol? Are de-alcoholized versions of beer and wine safe? And do people actually like drinking tea instead of wine at night? And basically, what do I drink if I no longer drink? Well, my name is Jean, and I know those questions very well. I've asked them all of myself at one point or another over the past three years of sober living. And though I don't have all the answers, I'm happy to tell you what's working for me. And so, too, will co-hosts tonight, uh, Amanda and Ellie. Hello, ladies. Hi, Hi, Jean. Hi. And friends, you are going to love hearing from our special guest tonight. Julie Elsden Height tells it like it is on her popular lifestyle blog, Sober Julie, and has a ton of great suggestions for non-alcoholic drinks in her recipe book, Mocktails, and more. With her platinum mohawk, her funky glasses, and her sassy attitude, Julie lives out her mantra that sober doesn't suck, and she kicks the crap out of any shame and stigma around recovery. Julie, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. You got me laughing with that intro. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, that's how we see it. It was great. And <laughs> well, we're glad you're here, and we're going to have you jump right into it. Would you start out by just introducing yourself and tell us a bit about you and your journey along this pathway of recovery? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, by the way. What you ladies oh, right. are doing here is amazing. This this was not available when I was considering, uh, or I shouldn't say considering, when I was avoiding considering what life and sobriety <laughs> might be. The work you guys are doing is powerful, and I really want to acknowledge that out there. Oh, um, thank you. So, thank you. Well, I live in Canada, and I was raised here in a smaller suburban town by two uh, by my parents who were married together with, and I had an older sister. And I grew up in a small little bungalow in a small town on a street where everybody knew your name and everybody's mothers were allowed to slap you upside the head if you did something wrong. And um, in our household, my parents were from Britain and, uh, you know, every evening included uh, beverages for my father when he was home. When he wasn't, he was at the pub. My mother didn't really drink uh, when I was growing up that I was aware of, but it was a very happy household we were in, but... There was alcohol everywhere throughout my entire life. Um, every single social situation I attended, even as a, a kid, there was uh, a bar that was the center of the room and where all the laughter seemed to come from and where everybody gathered to be together and make memories and share conversations. 
So that's kind of how I grew up with alcohol. I do remember, I don't remember drinking anything as a kid. I don't remember sampling any beverages or anything, but I do remember knowing that my father's export beer tasted like funk, and I could not understand why people drank it. So obviously I had sipped somewhere along the way. And um, my childhood was decently what I would call normal. I mean, what's normal? Are my parents alcoholics if they drink every single night? And the social time holds a precedent over time as a family. You know, I don't know. It's not That's not my role to define for them, but growing up that was how I perceived it because my father wasn't home. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, and he traveled for business, et cetera. So it was always striving for that little bit extra attention that seemed to be missing. Um, I excelled at sports. I excelled in school. And everything I did, I did to the best of my abilities. I really had a great social life and a good family. And again, I guess my first drink was in grade seven. Um, in the same horrifying story that almost everybody has where you're at a friend's house and in this case her mother actually made her own alcohol and I can remember honestly watching a woman strain it through nylon and things like that. <laughs> oh my God. It, I mean it was so so bad, so bad. And <laughs> the parents were away and there was a crowd of us in grade seven down in the basement and somebody pumped a little bit from the Texas Mickey of this hooch and and I smelled it, and it was revolting. And everybody was looking at each other, you know, challenging one another to go first and who's going to do it. And and this, like, raging beast within me just felt the need to, you know, be that person. You have to be that big shot. And, and so I remember I jacked it back, and I was, ugh, worst taste. Like, it still makes me salivate, not in a good way. Um, and, and I drank that drink, even though I was, I mean, in the heart of it, I did not want to be within 10 miles of that drink, but in the social situation, I was drawn to be that that hot shot. And um, that should have been indicative in future of what I had to look forward to, but it wasn't. I didn't drink in my teen years. I, didn't actually, I actually started very late. I was a control freak. I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to smoke. I didn't want to anything. And um, I controlled every situation I was in. Uh, I was always designated driver for people, and I I would admonish my friends the next day for their drunken behavior. You know, I was that person. Oh, I'll give you a ride. It'll be great. We'll have fun at the party. And then you go get drunk and fall down. I pick you up, pour you into the car, and the next day berate you for your behavior. <laughs> so really a fantastic friend. Um, you know, Um Again, high school ends. I did very, very well. And with my marks and my um, my sports, I was on the junior national team for shot put and discus. And I actually had college offers. And I had, I'm sorry about that. I had college offers and many other things. And uh, funnily enough, I, I didn't pursue anything after school, after high school, nothing. I found a job locally and worked in a nursing home. And it's it's this big, uh, it had been a big mystery to me why I didn't ever pursue a college, uh, you know, career or, or higher education of some kind because I worked so hard in high school to get, you know, a 90 average and, and did so well in sports that I had these great offers and I, and I didn't bother applying when there was an application process. I, I was too busy in my social life 
to even make it into the guidance counselor's office to apply. And at the same time, there was no push at home to do so. There was a question of, well, aren't you applying to school, but, but no actual engagement to help me along that path. And so uh, outside of school, I went and worked in a nursing home, and that's when I started um, hitting the bars. I was 18, and I started going to the bars with friends and still being the designated driver. And, and very quickly, when the age of, of majority here for drinking is 19, and on my 19th birthday, I had a drink with my father in, in the pub with his friends surrounding. And it was a feeling of inclusion. And I got warm and giddy, and, and I spent the evening drinking with them. And I was a part of the crowd, and I was, oh, I'm so funny, and I was so cool. <laughs> and I was like, who is this? This chick is awesome. It's a great night. <laughs> And, like, from that moment on, it became a, oh, it's okay, I can I can go out and have drinks and have fun. This is me. Like, this person doesn't need, um, I, I suppose looking back, I always internalized stress. I didn't deal with things. I, uh, you know, fought to be an overachiever and was my own worst critic. As much as I critiqued my friends after their nights of drinking, I ignored my antics and behavior the day after my own drinking. And um, so I was working in a nursing home, and on the weekend, uh-huh. it was party hard. And party hard means really hard. So we would start out the evenings with a crowd of girls who would find somebody's house to go to and drink beverages before going out, head to a bar, spend as much money we had at the bar, and then find an after party and continue. The next day, sleep until 4 or 5 p.m., get up and repeat the cycle. And this was all absolutely fine somehow within my social scene. And I lived with my parents in an apartment in their basement. They were fine with it because I was paying them rent and, you know, appeared healthy. I made it to work and had great friends and and social relationships, it seemed, on the surface. And um, I basically wasted years doing this until the point where I was massively discontent. And I I didn't honestly like myself. I was not allowing myself to be introspective. Um, What I did rather than that is I held a resentment at myself about not going to school. So rather than deal with um, all these uh, drinking behaviors I was having and the rolling lifestyle I was leading of clubs, bars, you know, drugs in between, promiscuity, I basically call it the binge drinking brigade I was part of this fantastic brigade, and I felt this crazy loyalty to this little gang of people that that probably didn't feel the same about me at all, you know, but it's that misplaced sense of belonging. And um, the time came where I was upset enough with myself about not going back to school that I actually decided to go back to college, and I went back uh, for mechanical engineering. And what this did to me was change my entire pattern because – Suddenly, I had to work three jobs to get myself through school, and I commuted to school. So my drinking time was limited. Instead of being the Thursday to Sunday life that I had been living, it was suddenly only Saturday night. So for three and a half years of school, it was much less often, but harder on the nights when I could drink. And in the days in between, I waited to drink. And it's funny because I never, ever cracked um, a bottle on those other days because I was never able to drink just once. 
So I wouldn't even bother buying any bottles of, because, you know, I'd spend the night at somebody's residence dorm and, and they'd all have a couple of drinks. Julie, do you want one? No, no, I've got, you know, class at 8 a.m. I can't. Come on, come on. No, really, I can't. And I, and I was able to say no because I knew I wouldn't be up in at that class. And so, um, oh, and, and also, one of my three jobs was as a bartender. So, uh, yeah, I know, I, I forget things. Um, I was a bartender for in, in total quite a few years. And um, at this job, I was surrounded by the social scene of alcohol without actually drinking. And um, that seemed to fill a bit of a void because I didn't have much else socially. Um, I guess after after school, I worked as a bartender instead of bothering to find myself a real big girl job. And I started drinking really hard after every shift because school was done. My responsibility was done. And... Um, and I was drinking really hard, and I got sick of commuting, and I rented a room in um, what turned out to be a crack house because my judgment was so fabulous at that time. And um, <laughs> I know, I think I'm like the world's worst little small-town girl heads to the city and thinks she has a clue, right? Um, <laughs> go in, rent this room, and there's all this chaos and drama, and I'm like in over my head. What the hell do I do? I'm drinking all the time and everything, and then I meet this crazy fantastic guy and up until this point I I had you know my first love in high school that broke up and then from there on in typical me controlling fashion decided that I would never fall in love again I was going to be single I wanted a loft apartment I wanted to write for a living or something really you know fabulous uber fabulous and never have kids all the rest and the reality of that is that I didn't want to be hurt again And so I meet this Mm -hmm. guy, and the guy is not rich. He's not older than me. He's not all the kind of guys that I had dated, surface dated for so many years. Because I had gotten my lifestyle to the point where when I was in school, I only dated people who could introduce me to things in life I couldn't get on my own, if you know what I mean. In order to not be hurt or fall in love, it was easier to date guys who wanted almost nothing of me other than a good time. And so I would go out with these guys who could take me to VIP events that I would be on their arm and I would, we would have a good laugh together, but there was absolutely nothing else. So I meet this guy uh, who was supposed to be my one-night stand, and I really know that my Christian husband is going to love the fact I'm saying this publicly. But he was supposed to be... <laughs> awesome. He, he was supposed to be my one-night stand, and he's, my one-night stand gone wrong because we ended up sitting up talking for hours and hours and hours. And, um, you know, it wasn't, and it didn't end up being a one night stand. It ended up being for 10 days straight. Um, we hit a level of intimacy without having physical contact that I'd never known with another human being. And it was the neatest thing. And of course I kept saying, well, let's get a bottle of wine. Right. And, and it would just get pushed off because he's not a drinker. So he didn't care. So we had this kind of amazing little, um, bubble going on in time where it was just the two of us and we were off work for those days and um and then he had to go back to work and I had to go back to work and and life rolls along and and we ended up moving in with one another and and um he was exposed to my drinking and I can remember him saying to me at one point after you know me getting us kicked out of 
another bar. <laughs> he would say, I mean, this just happened. I never meant for it to happen. I thought I was being saucy and a little bit sarcastic. I didn't realize I was being that rude to people, I think. Um, but he said to me afterwards, he says, you know, I just can't understand your need to neck the whole bottle. Like, why do you feel the need not to just have a couple drinks and enjoy the people around us who we're there with? And, of course, I didn't have an answer for it because in my history, everybody I knew drank like this. Every party I went to, from my perspective, it had been go hard or go home because you earned this. You worked hard, you earned this. And uh, right from year one, it presented challenges in our relationship. But I think he bought into He was having so much fun on so many levels that it was okay for a long time. Life rolled on, and we bought a home in suburbia and have two children, and I got a real big girl job in in uh, mechanical engineering, and I did very well in my career. And then it was um, I was able to not drink with each pregnancy, and then after the pregnancies, um, once I – it's funny, with each pregnancy, my breastfeeding time got shorter. And uh-huh. um, I, you know how it is, like – I don't know, pumping the junk only... I, I couldn't psychologically pump the junk. I just felt so damn guilty about... I was scared that there would be booze in my boob milk, so I couldn't feed that to my child. And So instead of going through that rigmarole, I just stopped breastfeeding early. And um, we'll forward a bunch of years, I guess. Within the years that my children were born in my early 30s until the year I got sober when I was 36, I managed to um, have a fantastic career, love my job, love my husband, love my kids, but my alcoholism was taking over my life. Um, there were nights, I was a blackout drinker. I just didn't know what I did. And I honestly did not have a clue until I woke up and saw the look on my husband's face. And this was truly a best friend relationship, the one person in the world who who I felt was invested in me the same way that I was invested in him. And it, seeing the pain on his face, uh, it didn't. It, it made it so I couldn't sweep my own shame under the rug. I had truly let myself down. I'd gotten to the point of um, self-hatred, and the only way to deal with the self-hatred that I knew was to drink more. And so um, that's what I did. I... The days when I wasn't drinking, I was waiting to drink. I was functioning. I was functional. Um, but I wasn't there because I was so busy with so much energy, avoiding dealing with anything. I was just putting out the fires of life instead of embracing anything. And then um, I went to a recovery group at the request of my husband. And I walked in and I sat into this meeting. And I dealt with it in my analytical way, which is, I shall attend this meeting. I shall figure out your program, and I shall master it and be the best mother sober person I've ever known. And I did that. (laughs) I did. I went into this meeting, and I boldly sat there with tears running down my face, ignoring, you know, how I really feel about myself, saying to myself, today I don't have to actually look at myself. Shh, don't cry. Shh, you know, and stuttered over the word alcoholic. I bought the book. I went home. I read that damn book. I found online support groups. I found online things. And I never returned to that support group again. And within two months, I was drinking again. And I was drinking even more. 
Um, still just a Sunday night, but by Tuesday morning I would be throwing up blood and uh, and uh, quite ill, quite ill, both psychologically and physically becoming ill from it. And then um, February 2010, I woke up and uh, realized that in one of my drunken stupors, I had written a suicide letter. And um, I did not remember writing a suicide letter and didn't even realize I was to the point of writing a suicide letter. But something in me, by the grace of God, kicked in and said, what the hell has happened? You know, you're, something within me recognized the fact that I was well in over my head and still worth fighting for. And it wasn't me. I'm telling you, this is like people talk all the time in recovery about having a spiritual moment or a God moment or a revelation. This was mine because there is no way that the Julie of those days thought she was worth actually saving. But something in me kicked in and said, enough's enough, you need help, and you're going to ask for it. And I opened my eyes to my husband and I said, I know there was a letter. I can't talk about what was in it. But I need you to tell me if I'm right that there was a letter. And he said, yeah, there's a letter. And I said, am I right that I sent it to more than one person? And he said, yeah, you did. <laughs> yep, I did. I suddenly, something within me, I sent it to people who I hadn't shared my um, my shattered self with, if you know what I mean. I was still able to hide the facade yeah. because they saw me working and they saw me being a mom and they didn't necessarily see behind closed doors. <laughs> So I had done this in a way that couldn't be ignored. I couldn't lie to myself anymore. So that very afternoon, um, I called a meeting with my parents and my sister and my husband and sat down and, and um, admitted I was an alcoholic and I didn't have a clue of how, how to live, period. And that the road looking ahead of me looked so bleak without alcohol that I was seriously at the point where I had considered suicide, obviously. Because um, how does one live if if you're around alcohol and never, ever able to taste it or touch it or have it as your best friend again? And, um, you know, I, there was all credit due to my family. They were super supportive. And my sister had Googled recovery groups for me and with, went to one the next day and got very honest with myself in the fact that I didn't know how to be honest. And I had this um, true surrender period in my life then when, and when by surrender, I had always been the person who sought out knowledge and intelligence and ability to control situations and learning how to mimic um, engagement with people and smiles and, and things like this. I had always done my best to um, master things. And so my surrender meant totally realizing and recognizing that I'm the master of nothing. And um, I felt really stripped bare. And what I did in the beginning was I went to these recovery group meetings and I read books and I turned to my God and um, slowly learned to live one day at a time, just one day at a time. And... um, you know, said the serenity prayer a million times, said that any man can fight the battles of just one day. I don't know how many times in a day I would say that to myself, but it got me through the days. And slowly over the days, 
I built up strength. Um, and and I have to say, those for about twenty days, there is this incredible liberated person that I was. Like I felt so blessed to be alive, and so blessed to have the opportunity to breathe and to learn the way I was learning. Um, you know, every hour was hard. Like I'm not saying it, it was easy, but it was this. With surrender for me came freedom that I'd never, ever known because I stopped beating myself up and I stopped all the internal thoughts and I kept just saying the serenity prayer and paying attention to what I needed to do in my day and doing the next right thing. That's what I did. So it was this fantastic little time again and it reminded me of of my time in those 10 days with my husband. There's few moments in life where I have these these uh, amazing times, and that's one of them. And then I guess um, I, I should tell you, I mean, I could stop there because recovery has been a, a wicked, uh, enlightening journey, but just to add into that, um, when I was 20 days sober, I was in a massive car accident, and it's left me uh, four years later with uh, chronic injuries and pain and a brain injury that don't allow me to be the person I was back then. And I look upon that as a gift from God because at 20 days sober, I was beginning to become overconfident again. And I still pasted a lot of who I was on my job title and my capabilities in that regard. And so that, that uh, car accident, while is an entirely different program, it just shows us that recovery is not easy. Recover, life and sobriety is, is not all roses. But by living one day at a time, you know, you do find happiness eventually. Wow. Oh, wow. That's very powerful, Julie. Very. Thank you, Julie. Um, yeah, I was jotting things down as you spoke because, you know, we could we could speak for hours about the many, many lessons that you shared there, but one of the things you said is really the heart of what, what we want to suss out of our dialogue tonight, and that's when you said, how can I live in a world without my best friend, alcohol? or live in a world surrounded by my best friend alcohol and not touch it. And um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned to someone in our in our online recovery group who said that sometimes they will sit with a drink sitting in front of them so that no one offers them another one. And I said, wow, that to me is like standing naked in a closet with an old boyfriend. Like, <laughs> that's not a good place to be. Like, you know, maybe you have no intention of anything happening, but really, why would you be there? So so there is a fine line, right? Like, we can only control so much about how we survive in this alcohol-filled and alcohol-fueled society that we're in and yet still protect ourselves and maybe even enjoy ourselves sometimes. And so I guess I want to have you kind of jump forward and tell us how you came to um, writing a blog, Sober Julie, which is really, you know, about sobriety, but about life, because there's so much life after sobriety. And then you have this fantastic um, recipe book called Mocktails and More, and I have it. It's really, I really have enjoyed it a lot. And I have it too, this is Ellie. I love it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to talk more about the recipes later, but just kind of tell us, Julie, how the blog came about and then the recipe book. For sure. The blog was actually due to the brain injury um, 
with a car accident. So after my car accident, I was unable to go to work. I was at home um, pretty much incapable of the things I was doing before. And I did what any digitally connected woman would do. I started Googling different topics, including recovery, and began reading blogs. And I spent so much time reading blogs that eventually I clued into the fact that I was told to write. And so I started this anonymous Sober Julie blog, and it was on a free blogger platform. And and um, if you go back to my early blog posts, I mean, I'm actually surprised at how good they are. They are so introspective and fascinating. They're wonderful. But it is all recovery-based. And what it did was it provided me with an outlet to feel useful to myself, if you know what I mean, in, in a day. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was at a time when I couldn't even load a dishwasher because of pain. I I couldn't bathe my children, you know, and things like this. So I was uh, very much a bystander in life, and and writing was a massive outlet for me. Handwriting I couldn't do as well, but I could type, so I was typing. And uh, so that's how how Sober Julie came about and has never lost its name because ultimately the reason I I began blogging was my sobriety and wanting to share it. And, And there was a lack of in Canada, there there were no sober mothers blogging openly the way I was. And there were very few uh, that I found, and Ellie, thank God, was one of them. And um, and the recovery group online that we're all in was one of the places where I, I found so much strength and hope that I wanted to continue to add to that in the online network. So that's where Sober Julie came from. Now, Mocktails is um, not as wonderful of a story. <laughs> There's only so mm-hmm. many events you can go to and order coffee late at night. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was el- literally elbowing out kids at the juice table, and I was super annoyed by this. <laughs> I, every time I'd go to a bloody event and, and um, you know, a bartender, and I was a bartender, so I understand that bartenders are challenged by the ingredients they happen to have behind the bar. But mocktails that you order at a bar are syrupy. They're nasty a lot of the time, and people don't know how to do them. And so I began developing my own mocktails from fresh ingredients. And I I eventually had so much action on them and interest in them that I decided to compile them into one place, into a little recipe book, and put it out there, hoping again to alleviate this stigma of alcoholism and to make people realize that we all have the capability of making these fantastic drinks that are non-alcoholic. This is Jean. Um, One thing I found, is, and I think a a lot of people share this, is that, you know, I developed a fairly sophisticated palate from drinking (laughs) drops of wine, and 7-Up, bless 7-Up's heart, it's a great drink, but it is not a replacement for all the wonderful you know, palate pleasers of of um, all the varieties of cocktails and drinks that you have with alcohol. And so I really, what what you said I think hit it on the head, is that when you take a, a recipe book like yours that uses fresh ingredients, fresh lime, um, fresh juice, and mixing them together, all of a sudden you've got something a little bit more interesting. And um, so what are some of those, Sort of basics, Julie. Like, what are what what is it that we crave? What are the what are the flavors that really sort of hit the right note for us? Sure. I just really quickly want to speak on what you said about the 
<coughs> we develop a palate. And, and I think part of what people really need to realize is we um, crave more than just the taste and the actual physical effects of, than, of alcohol. We crave the process of creating the drink. Mm-hmm. Some of us, mm-hmm. many of us, had that special glass and that special bowl it was a bowl to me. It was a wine glass that was, you know, bigger than a cereal bowl. Right. Yeah, it was, it was huge. That wine glass, when it came down, I began to begin to exhale. Mm-hmm. And and it was the, the the peeling back of the wine bottle label. It was the slow removal of the cork and the, and the pour and the glug and, and the smelling of, you know, these, these, Things may seem like I'm being super verbal about the, a simple process, but to me, it was that intimate. Mm-hmm. And so part of a mocktail and the preparation and planning of one can become marking of a special occasion for a person again. And for me, it was. It came about actually, um, you know, up in... I'd been making mocktails, but not looking at it that way until one Christmas, the first Christmas when I started crying because I wanted a drink so badly and my husband could looked at me and he, and he got it. And you know what he did? He went down into the basement and unpacked that big glass for me and came back upstairs and he made me a mocktail. And Aww. I sat there and I wrapped presents with this damn mocktail and cried. Aww. <laughs> but he... He recognized to me that I was missing my best friend, which was the event, mm-hmm. you know? The ritual, yeah. The ritual. And so I'm just going to cough. I apologize. <coughs> but if we're talking about ingredients, it's all depending upon your own palate. And for me, I always like to have lemons and limes and pomegranate and soda. <coughs> Oh dear, what tor- terrible time to get a cough. Um, <laughs> by soda, I can spark- sparkling water. You know, if you have any berries and any citrus and sparkling water, you've got a mocktail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> um, Julie, the other thing that um, sometimes are, are in some of the recipes is a simple syrup. So that's like just reducing a little bit of sugar and water to make a thick syrup, right? It is. It's equal parts sugar and water, and uh, simple syrup has an entirely different texture and malleability than than adding just uh, granulated sugar into a drink. Simple sugar is used in cocktails and mocktails, and having just a little bit available is fantastic, but it really does only take a couple minutes to make it the cool-down process. You just boil up some water, add in equal parts of sugar, and throw it into your uh, freezer if you're in a rush. Oh, that's which a I am idea. a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm in a rush a lot of the time. So I just throw that together <laughs> before I do anything, throw it in the freezer, and then I get out any berries I want. And with berries, throw them in a blender and push them through any kind of strainer, and you'll get a, a thicker puree, which is fantastic. And it, like you say, it can be as simple as just throwing handfuls of fresh fruit and a, just a squeeze of a citrus and some sparkling water or um, or uh, something bubbly in there with it. Or you can make it a little bit more of an elaborate process and be more um, adventurous with it, right? And I know you and I oh, both yeah. did this 
Julie, um, you and I both posted, I think, on the same day around Christmas time that we were headed off to Christmas parties with a a, pic, a picture of uh, yes. mojitos, like um, from your recipe book, the the non-alcoholic yes. mojitos. Um, <clears throat> and I know I, I went to a party and I labeled this thing like, Jeans, oh yeah, non-alcoholic <laughs> mojitos. I didn't want anyone to add anything to it, and I I really kept it kind of my eye on it all night, just to make sure that nothing got added because that's one of my big concerns. But it felt it was really fun. Like as I got ready and got dressed for the party, that was part of it: getting a hostess gift ready and making my drink, and and um, it was it was a real kind of a special thing, and and. Um, I just thought, wow, it was so empowering. Whereas when I when I had first quit drinking, I was just scared. I was like a little mouse going to a party because, like you said, I didn't know how I was going to be at this party where my ex best friend was there and I couldn't talk to her anymore. Little Miss Alcohol on the corner, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And it was like it was like I brought a buddy, you know. I brought something special with me. So that's something that you yes, recommend people do is bring with. Oh, absolutely. What you want to do is when you're invited anywhere, tell ask the hostess for the number of guests and let her know you will bring mocktails. And be clear, it's mocktails. You'll bring the non-alcoholic beverages. And uh, these are non-alcoholic adult beverages because if there's children, they'll be gone in seconds. <laughs> I've right. made that yeah. mistake where, where I've said to a hostess, I'll bring the non-alcoholic beverages, and the next thing I know, they don't have juice for kids. They think I'm bringing juice for kids. Right. So All right. now I'm very clear, and I'll often give her a couple of options. And and I, first of all, it's fun to contribute something that nobody else thinks to bring. And secondly, it's been amazing how many of my friends who uh, are looking to drink alcohol that night end up asking, can they have some of the mocktail to mix a drink with? Because it's so amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and everybody enjoys it. Everybody enjoys it. But I'm, I'm like, no, back off with your damn booze. No, I'm really not. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> Don't poison me. I think my the goal is to make out. everyone comfortable, right? It is. Uh, actually, I really don't care. I'm kind of not really caring if others are comfortable, <laughs> which sounds horrible. A girl after my true. own heart. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got to tell you, man, they're walking around with my best friend. They're well taken care of. I have to make sure that I am absolutely fine. Another tip for going to any event, when I go to an event, the most important thing I do to myself when I am invited to an event, I check my motives if I want to go. Mm-hmm. I have to be 100% certain that I'm in a good place when I head out. If I'm going for the wrong reason and if my motive is maybe to, you know, I need them to fix me or I'm, you know, I need the distraction or things like this, I don't go. I go when I'm solid and I'm in a good place, and I always have an exit strategy for any event I go to. Mm-hmm. That's, That's a really important plan. Actually, I yeah, think that, that was a tip I picked up from you, Ellie, on one of the early Bubble Hour podcasts, was to always have a way to leave if you need to leave. Definitely. And to make I sure people the- understand that, that you may just need to leave, and that's okay. And I, you know, I, I actually isolated, this is Ellie, um, my social events to the people that I was closest to, my good friends, who I felt comfortable sharing with um, the fact that I might just, you know, for me, it's usually around 9 or 10 o'clock when the mood in the room or the atmosphere <laughs> in the room starts to shift a little bit. 
yeah. and everyone's a little bit tipsy or starting to repeat themselves or getting a little bit too loose for me, then mm-hmm. I will leave. Um, and so just to tell people that I'm not being rude ahead of time, and so I'm not trying to lie or make excuses or trying to figure out why I'm going to leave, um, was a big part of my own defense strategy. But I love the fact that you use the word empowering, Julie, because for me, having um, my drink in my hand, and for me, for a long time, it was club soda. There's something about fizzy water. I don't know what it is, but there's something about fizzy carbonated (laughs) water, flavored water that helped me, um, fizzy water with a little bit of cranberry and a fresh fruit, fresh fruit in a drink, and I could walk around and nobody... First of all, nobody's really paying attention to what I'm drinking, but I feel like they are. Um, yeah. If I have something in my hand at all times, no one's saying, can I get you something from the bar? Do you, you want a drink? If I have my own drink, I can say I'm all set. But then a step That's further, if I'm it, coming yeah. with my own beverages, like you're talking about, I can go and help myself to my drink and make sure that I'm always, it's like a, the best offense is a good defense. I always have something in my hand. Mm-hmm. because yeah. the biggest trigger that I have in social situations is feeling other than. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine described going to a party where other people are drinking is feeling like you know, you're watching your ex-boyfriend dance with somebody and you know your ex-boyfriend's bad for you and you don't really want him back, but he's dancing with somebody and you just wish, you know, it, it's that jealous feeling. I was jealous of the people who were drinking. Yeah. So if I had my own drink, then it was like all about what I could have and not what I couldn't have. Um. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I take that a step further at a bar. I cannot stand when I go up to a bar and I ask for, like, a, you know, club soda and cranberry, and I get it in one of those kid glasses, you know, yeah. big, like a big glass like with a huge, like, white, wide straw. Yeah. And I laughed at your, you know, the juice box kind of scenario where the kids drink all your mocktails. I would ask for it in a cocktail glass. Not yes. necessarily for me, but for everybody else, because I was conscious of the fact that I thought everybody was watching what I was drinking. And even if they weren't, it just made me feel sort of part of instead of different than. Mm-hmm. And different than always made me feel just triggered or off or different somehow. I I've, I've gotten that. Good, <laughs> What's I have that? a little bit of sobriety. That, I have a little bit of sobriety, and I still do that. I'm always, okay, what are you pouring? No, give me a pretty glass. Yeah. Exactly. And I exactly. absolutely believe in the, if I have something in my hand, people ask me less questions. They they want usually to know what I've made, but that's yeah. because I'm very open now about my alcoholism and recovery and generally um, being so visible and out there about it. Usually people at a party will know. Right. Um, it, it is in the bars uh, or at larger events that people don't know, and they're so busy worrying about themselves that they tend not to pay as much attention. Right. Um, but I think you the know vast what? majority of people don't have, uh, are not open and don't have that sort of safety net around them of friends or family or even strangers who understand. And the yeah. idea, the idea that we have a right to dictate what it is that we, you know, what glass we want it served in, how we want it prepared, those things mm-hmm. are um, something that I think that most people feel like the whole, like I felt like I had a siren on my head because I wasn't drinking alcohol. <laughs> And everybody yeah, else does not a, care. They do not care what you're drinking. Yeah. <laughs> you just think they do. I know. We, we feel like there's a spotlight on us, but there never mm-hmm. is. People are honestly, people are too busy wondering if there's a spotlight upon them. But exactly. as a former bartender, as a former bartender, I will say this. Demand your glass in a nice way. 
instruct mm-hmm. them how you'd like it in a nice way because I'll tell you what, when I used to order scotch on the rocks, I was uber specific with that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know? um, and the other thing, this is Amanda, the other thing too, I, I would imagine most bartenders have dealt with someone who's in there sober and if you just go up to them and say quietly, can you make me something you know, fancy, and I know a friend, a friend of mine who does this. You know, make me something special, non-alcoholic, and a you know a regular glass. You know, I don't drink, and it would make me feel better. You know, and they'll they'll do it. I mean, they they know. You know, they're they 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 have plenty of people that come in there who are in recovery okay. as well. So, or sometimes even well, if you don't want to say that you don't drink, say I'm the designated driver, and they will exactly. sometimes even give or, it to you for free. <laughs> they'll say, "Oh, good for you. Yeah, Here's I mean, a free drink." Yeah. This is it Jean, and I, I sometimes think that if you're not drinking, you get pegged as, um, oh, great, you're not going to tip and you're not going to have a big bar bill. And so I've been at places where I've given the server like 10 bucks or even 20 I mean, my sobriety is worth that to me, and said, hey, you're my angel tonight. you got to look out for me. Make sure I don't get served. and Or just, you know, just can you run to the restaurant next door and get an old jewels for me because they don't have that here. I mean, it, it, a little bit of, um, like you said, ask for what you need and, and you know, some, some paper encouragement doesn't hurt either. I mean, I think that most people really want to help each other. And, um, and someone who's in um, the hospitality industry, serving people, giving them what they want is, is, you know, what they're taught to do and it's what they're there to do. And so if we're... If we're clear about what it is we want, uh, and they know that they'll be thanked for it, I mean that's that's it's making their job easy. Absolutely right. And I, as you guys were talking about ordering drinks in the kids' glasses, I'm remembering one of my very very first outings after I got sober, and everyone was. In, I live in Canada too, and so we were um, at an event, and everyone was drinking Caesars. Um, I know they don't serve those in the states, but they, you should. They're the best drink ever, and um, and they're very good without the vodka in them because they're like clamato juice and spicy, and so you don't really miss the alcohol. So the only problem is you have to say, I'll have a virgin Caesar, which is seems tacky and awkward. Is that a Bloody Mary? Is it the same thing? It's, it's different because that. it's clam. It's a clamato juice, which is a oh, clam-based tomato it. juice. Sorry. Yeah. Just curious. And, um, but the thing that bugged me was when they brought it to me, it everyone else had this shrimp on their side. <laughs> I didn't have a Where's shrimp. Where's my damn shrimp? <laughs> or a pickled <laughs> asparagus or a fancy garnish. Like, I just had, like, a stick in mine, and I was really mad. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, it I wanted to say, listen, I'll pay the same price, put all the same goodies <laughs> in it, just not the alcohol. I just, I want to have something good here. But those are, those yeah, are and so, if you want to mark it and add so something, hard. don't take it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really, eh? <laughs> yeah, Put an exactly. extra orange on the side. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to throw some scenarios at all three of you, and I'm curious to know how you handle them, um, because these are situations that are really awkward um, for people, not only in early recovery, but just people that are, aren't out a lot socially or that when they get stuck in these situations, they find them hard. So... First question for you is, is what do you do when you're out to dinner with a group and they are ordering a bottle of wine for dinner? How do you handle that situation? Julie, I know you should speak up. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. I can answer to this. Again, I'm quite forward now, but back then in 
in early sobriety, I was very out there with close friends and family, but I did end up actually in a situation where I was at a dinner where, um, you know, there was wine glasses on the table. They weren't looking to order a single bottle, but um, the server would come around and offer red or white, that sort of a scene. And a friend uh, who has many, many, many years in sobriety, before I was going, I told him where we were going, and he said, when you sit down, the first thing you do is hand the next passing waiter your wine glass. Yep. Get get it off the table. And so I did that, got the first, you know, the water goes around first, and what happens is the person comes to serve wine, and I, it just took me to say, no, like a brief, no, thank you, and they keep moving. The one tip I would get is have any excess glasses that you're not going to use, take away from the table. I have, you know, as time goes on, I've had to say to friends, I'm not interested in uh, in wine this evening, but you guys go ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. That's you can also tip. turn your wine glass over, and mm-hmm. lots of yeah. experienced wait staff will know what that means. Like at a wedding and things, if you yeah. just turn it over, and then when they come around, you just hand them the glass or turn it over and make sure they know that it's not, you don't want wine. I also, uh, Jean, I just fill mine with water is uh, is the other mm-hmm. thing I do because then they see there's something in it and they mm-hmm. uh, they don't offer. But I, I never thought to just hand away the glass. I mean, then that that's a communication mm-hmm. tool, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, um, and how about, Amanda, um, go ahead, Amanda. Oh, I was just going to say, um, in the beginning it was, that was an awkward situation for me, as you know, and, and I've been pretty open from the very beginning, but I found that um, I would, so I wouldn't, you know, um, me, I like freeze like a deer in the headlights, and I would just say no, thank you. I wouldn't have thought of any of those other other clever things to do. And what I found though by just saying no, thank you is no one really thought anything of it. Um, and then mm-hmm. just another. But, and and so, you know, all of the, you know, all of my thought, you know, what do I do? Do I hand the glass? Do I do this? Do I do that? You know, all that thought. I just said, no, thank you, and it that was it. Um, so it, yeah. I've only had one situation where someone pressed me. Um, and then another, just because someone mentioned a wedding, when you when you go to the wedding and the toast glasses are, you know, are filled right, right away, um, or, you know, you get there and they're already filled or, you know, um, I I just immediately hand my glass to someone else at the table, and just as simple okay. as that. And and I don't I don't really say anything. I just say, do you want this? And they'll say, oh, you don't want it? No. And I'll say, no. That's in. Um, I might say, oh, I don't like champagne. You know, just. But I just I get it out from in front of me because I can see myself not thinking anything about it and just sipping it. So I yeah. just I again. So what you were saying, I just get it out of my face. Right. Um, yeah. You don't want to be on autopilot. And yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, those are good tips. And how about um the the idea of the virgin cocktails? Um I've I always hated saying that word. I I felt it felt like shouting the word penis in church or something to say virgin. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? I would sort of be like, can I get... You're not supposed to do that? Really? <laughs> can I get um, club soda? And then I'd like, explain all the ingredients in whatever drink, just so I didn't have to say, like, a virgin pina colada, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, so do, do you guys find that awkward, or do you even... Do you even... Um, do you find that that's triggery to have something that's too much like... A cocktail that you used to enjoy. What's your What's your stance around that, you guys? 
This is Julie. Oh, this I took, is Amanda. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'll just say real quick. I understand how it totally can be a trigger for some people. I personally do not drink my drink of choice mm-hmm. anymore. You know, I, I just don't. Um, but I will say, I definitely don't order virgin cocktails. What I tend to do is I, you know, ask them to get wine at the table. And whether it's my husband or myself, one of us goes up to the bar and speaks to the bartender and asks him what he has on hand. Because when you order something virgin, you need to realize that some of these cocktails are made in a way where the flavor is entirely different when it's a virgin. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the thing I have found successful is just go up and ask the bartender um, how good or bad. Of, like, try it at home maybe and figure out which of the mainstream cocktails that you make in a virgin way that you actually like. Because I'm more often, when I'm out at a restaurant or something, to order juices combined and topped with a fizzy water and a garnish of fruit rather than order it as a virgin cocktail because virgin cocktails are significantly different unless uh, the mixologist himself has spent time perfecting it as a mocktail. Good point. Very good point. And this is Ellie. I um, I don't actually – I do find them triggery. I do find ordering anything – I mean, I loved rum and I loved um, vodka, and I just – I don't enjoy cocktails without them. And so I have found one or two drinks that I just love – on my own, and they're very simple. I mean, club soda with fresh fruit or a splash of pomegranate yeah. or lemon or something. And like everyone, other people have said, I asked for those ingredients instead of saying a virgin this. <laughs> so to me, a virgin daiquiri, there's no point at all, right. yeah. no matter how much it tastes. Agreed. And yeah. all I think when it, gets, it comes to me is, God, I wish this had rum in it. So for me, <laughs> if it looks more like my favorite drink, it's triggery to me. Mm-hmm. So I have just stayed away from anything that resembles anything that I would have loved to have drunk had as a regular drink before. Um, and, and, you know, it was interesting. I, I didn't want to seem negative, but I was curious to ask Julie also about how, um, you know, there's the whole O'Doul's debate and non-alcoholic drinks and, you know, whether or not they're – you hear the expression, at least in the United States, about how non-alcoholic drinks are for non-alcoholics, that you're not even supposed to pretend mm-hmm. to be drinking – and the innate, the the alcoholic in me rebels against that. Like, no one tells me what I can drink and can't drink. You know, not even me. Like, I don't, no one tells me what to do, just period. So yeah. I find, like, it's almost like dieting where if I'm on a diet where there's a whole list of things I can't have, I just feel deprived and angry and sad all the time. Mm-hmm. But if someone says, here's mm-hmm. what you can have, I feel more empowered and better about it. Um, so I just stay away from the whole virgin anything altogether. Because to me, that's yeah, like a, a spotlight on the fact that I don't drink. So just think about and what Ellie, you want. Ellie, you, yeah. you hit it really hard for me there, Ellie. That was my biggest thing was I denied myself any special drinks at all until that night when I cried and my husband made me a mocktail. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I totally I, understand I, that. Yeah. I, was, I was drinking Red Bull and Seven at the bar when we'd go. I mean, Red Bull, that's super awesome healthy. You're not looking for a fix at all. <laughs> um <laughs> So, and then and then that tasted like cack, and so eventually that that's where mocktails came in for me was was just to try to find something that tasted nice that was an occasion marker drink beverage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, this, this is Amanda. Is I um. Oh, go, go ahead, Amanda. No, I go. I, go, gonna... I haven't. <laughs> I was just gonna say. I mean, for me, I just do. Um, 
I, I mean, I, club soda and cranberry, that's kind of my go-to, and it's something I don't drink around the house. I save it for when I go out, um, and it just makes me feel like I'm doing something different, and it's not, um, you know, if every once in a while, though, because I did used to drink cranberry and soda and um, raspberry, whatever, raspberry vodka or whatever. Um, I can't even think of what it was anymore, but... So every once in a while, someone will make it, and I'll be like, "Ugh!" Like it'll it'll bring that thought to my head. But for the most part, it's fine. But I actually I found um, to the whole mocktail thing. There's this restaurant. I'll give them a little plug. Not your average Joe's in Mass, at least in Massachusetts, that has a whole menu of non-alcoholic beverages, and they are fantastic. Like they are mm-hmm. definitely like straight out of your book, Julie. They're so good, and they have like, you know, like a raspberry lime rick. Ricky and it and it's like raspberry infused with you know they they make like their own raspberry um, sauce puree or whatever and it's just it's a whole menu and it's really nice and um, I also wanted to say I saw on Facebook today someone had posted over in I think it was in England they are now opening dry bars so they're oh, you know fascinating. Yeah, and I, I was like, wow, I get you know, it, I, and I just saw it today, and I didn't, I just saw the the headline, I didn't even get to read it, but I find, I think that would be amazing, um, you know, just having, but I, I love, you know, not your average Joe's, they have great food, and then you know they have this whole menu, it makes me happy going there because I'm like I can go there and I order something and it's fantastic, um, and so, but I definitely, I don't think I'd ever, like you said, I would never order the virgin strawberry. Daiquiri, because I'd be like, "Where's the, where's the room?" Yeah, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point? Uh, this is Jean, and I wanted to say too, as uh, someone who was a, a daily wine drinker, I really miss the acidity of wine and the, the way that it. Um, nothing else really did that for me the way that wine did. And I know you can buy de-alcoholized wine in the grocery store, and I stay the heck away from that because. Yeah. To me, that's, I, I heard someone use the phrase, don't tease your disease. And I, I just thought that would be, because it wouldn't satisfy me, I know that. And um, I've heard people say that it's not, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit the same note. So I do stay away from that. But I, I, two things. One is that I have found that grapefruit has that mm. acidity. It has that bite. Mm. And if I um, cut, not like a grapefruit, not the sweetened cocktail, but a real grapefruit juice and then cut that with a little bit of uh, soda, that is that really is that nice, acidic, like just it, it hits that note for me. It's nice just before a meal. and um, Or, you know, but the, the funny thing is one is enough. <laughs> one is enough. Yeah. So that's an interesting turn. And then I wanted to say to... Um, the LEU asked about non-alcoholic beers and, and those kinds of drinks. And although I, I, I stay very far away from de-alcoholized wine, I will, in a restaurant or in a bar, I often will order um, a non-alcoholic beer. Mm-hmm. And I ask them to bring me a wine glass along with the beer. And the reason I do that is because I need to see that bottle. I need to know for sure that I'm drinking, that I'm getting what I think I'm getting. Because even after three years of recovery, I'm not completely convinced that if someone wrongly handed me a drink with alcohol and I I fear that I might still drink it, even 
and and not tell anyone, you know? If everyone thought that I was ordering, if I ordered something non-alcoholic and accidentally got brought the wrong thing, um I fear that. And I I I I don't think I would do the wrong thing. I don't believe I'm giving myself permission to do the wrong thing if that happens, but I'm just trying to avoid that situation. So to me, I feel very safe by having um by knowing what I'm getting. Now, being the bottle and then pouring it into another glass, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That said, you could do that with anything. You could order a bottle of, you know, a pop or of a, a sparkling water or something. But for me, it's it's easy. It's generally available. And also, that was never my drink of choice, so I don't feel particularly triggered by it. But it's an important yep. thing for people to consider, and I think it's different for everyone because um, non-alcoholic drinks or de-alcoholized drinks can still have a small amount of alcohol in them. And yeah. um, and so that's an important thing to know and to um, know yourself well and understand how that affects you and whether or not that's a safe thing to have. But I think it is an important question and one that everybody has to kind of figure out their their position around it. Mm-hmm. But, this is I uh, think that's culturally that different I, in different places, oh. too, because in, in at least in my in, – I'm in Massachusetts and the recovery community here – um, is vehemently against non-alcoholic beverages of any kind. Like anything mm-hmm. that looks like a beer or looks like, like look, de-alcoholized wine, any of that is just considered no. Um, but for me, beer, I mean, even a regular beer, does not. it just does not tempt me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it, there is some intuition involved, but even making those decisions, I talk to other people about them. Try, mm-hmm. Like what, what am I trying to achieve by even pretending to drink beer? Or mm-hmm. anything that looks like a cocktail, like just be, making sure that I'm pulling my community in to talk to them about why I would even want to, you know, play with that fire is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is Julie. Um, I don't drink non-alcoholic beers, ciders, or de-alcoholized wine at all. And the reason is it's psychologically for me uh, a tightrope I can't afford to walk. And that's just me personally, which is... Um, a funny conversation to be having with somebody who takes pride in mocktail recipes for for some people. <laughs> you know, for some people, I'm I'm speaking out of my rump, but it, the fact is is that if it looks like a bottle of wine, I cannot go near it. And even yeah, when I sense. bring drinks, when I bring drinks to people's parties, I have these really cute, old-fashioned looking pop bottles uh, or crafts that I bring them in. And it's because it to me it's psychologically entirely different than the the wine bottle of my choice that I would have uh, enjoyed an evening with. Yep. Yep. Um, this is Amanda. Um, I know for me, I know I do know people who have years and years, like you know, twenty years of sobriety, who drink, you know, O'Doul's or whatever on the regular basis. And I think you know it is a personal preference. I think it is something that people need to talk about. Um, you know, with their, you know, and and really look at their own motives on why they're doing it. You know, there is, you know, there are people that would argue that, you know, it does have a small percentage of alcohol. Um, but really it's a matter of, you know, I, I think, you know, one thing too is does it trigger you? You know, for some people it's a trigger. For some people it's just, you know, something to drink. And, you know, it's really, you know, I, I would talk to more than one person about it, but I, I think it's, you know, I 
um, you know, it, it's, I always really hesitate when people say what you can or cannot do. You know, um, like Ellie mm-hmm. said, that's like an instant, you know, that's an instant way of getting me to do something is telling me I can't do it. Um, <laughs> and especially when it, you know, if it's not, you know, it's one thing if someone says, you know, you can't actually, the, the best thing someone ever said to me is, it would be, you know, well, you can drink whenever you want to. I think Ellie said that to me, and I was like, oh, I can? Well, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> well, fine. I'm not gonna then. Um, but I'll show you. Once, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll show you. I just won't drink ever again. Uh, get off my back. Um, but um, one thing I had happen to a friend of mine that I, uh, just to caution people on too is if say you're out at a place and you're looking at a non-alcoholic menu and you say, oh, I'll have a lemonade. If you're an adult, be careful of what you order um, yeah. or what you get because a lot of times they assume that you're ordering, you know, well, especially if you get like a pink lemonade because a pink lemonade, it, it, there's a drink called the pink lemonade. Mm-hmm. And I had that happen to a friend of mine. She was about two weeks sober and got served an alcoholic beverage. And mm-hmm. um, fortunately, she just like spit it out and said, oh, my God, you put booze in this. And, you know, she, she was all set. But, I mean, talk about, you know, it was her first time going out with a whole pack of sober friends at my encouragement and she goes out and they serve her booze i'm like oh my god <laughs> how, how awful is that uh but she survived the day i the day i, I shaved right my head I, sh- I shaved my head for charity and, and we had a little event with it and they they did a bald mocktail called the bald julie and they offered it, oh, it, it was, i love it <laughs> i know it's hilarious and so it's this fantastic mocktail, but they offered it as a cocktail as well because every one that was sold raised money. And it was in an open bar, you know what I mean, and all the rest. Not an open bar, but I mean open to the public restaurant with a bar. And so anybody who ordered it for the day, there was money going in the kitty. So that's fine. Well, my husband, right before I went and got my head shaved, came to me with one of these bald Julies. And I took a sip, and I'm like, oh, there's alcohol in it. And it was the first time in two and a half years that I tasted alcohol. And I I still laugh at that. I still laugh <laughs> at, that it was on that day. And yeah, no hella, good deed goes you know. unpunished, Julie. <laughs> well, this is it, right? Like, come on, these things are bound to happen. And if they do, do not feel badly. Do not reset your dry date. You know, let's not mm. go over the moon about it. It's an unfortunate thing that happened. And don't second-guess your motive if you truly didn't know. Right. Yeah. Yep. And it's a different thing if you chug the whole thing down. That's a whole different thing. But if you just, that's a different I, thing. I say, you know. Yeah. But basically, <laughs> handle it and we laughed that right? way one night. There was one New Year's Eve where I had um, the red Solo cups and I was drinking my little, you know, club soda with a fresh fruit in it, in a um, red Solo cup. So I looked like everybody else. And I put it down. I went to the bathroom. I came back and I picked up what I thought was my drink and it wasn't. And I took a sip and it had vodka in it, and I looked around like, oh, my God, this is vodka in it. And nobody saw that I had the wrong drink, and I had just, you know, I was in a bad space. I didn't want to be there. It was a New Year's Eve party. I'd just been diagnosed with cancer. It was a horrible time. And so I just drank the whole thing on purpose. Yeah. And so the first sip, I did not consider a relapse. The lugging of the rest of it was. <laughs> I knew. Yeah. But even at yeah. a party, like, if you're trying to disguise the fact that you're not drinking – like putting something on the cup or something that makes it, you know, so you can not make that mistake. And, I've, I, you know, I've more than one story I've heard of somebody who ended up relapsing that way. It was terrible. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And that goes back to Julie's original point, or she said at the beginning of the show about, um, oh, I just lost my chain, um, about it, your check your motives before you go to any type of situation like mm-hmm. that. Um, because you're, and, and it, I talked to you right after that, your motives were not good. You said, I don't want to go tonight. <laughs> yeah, I knew you I shouldn't went be there. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, you you were like I just got that. Yeah, I didn't want to go. That you know you didn't want to be there. You weren't in the right state of mind, and you kind of um, you know from when you relayed this story to me, it was kind of you know like oh, there I went and relapsed. F you, you know because you made yeah, me. Yeah, it was here. a total yeah. F you. Like you know I have yeah it definitely like I like to Julie's original point. I knew something was not right with my head, and so I went there to prove something. Like oh, even though I you know all these things are happening, I can still go to a party. I should not have been there. And that's, that's a that's, huge... You know, I think that's really important in that a lot of us drank to to comfort, right? Like we had resentments, <laughs> we, had, we had hurts, we had wounds, we had misunderstandings about ourselves. And that was the only comfort that we came to depend on. And so yeah. if we're if we're going into a social situation where we have discomfort, whether it's because we don't really want to be there or we feel bad about the circumstance or something else that's going on in our life that's pulling us back, that that siren song of your old comfort is going to call you a lot louder. And that, yeah. that mm-hmm. could be a time where you need to just not be there. And I think that's that's probably an important um, basis to, to have set below this whole discussion of what do you drink in social situations is the first question is what social situations do you put yourself into? And, right, uh, right. and and if it's safe to be there, then from there we go on. We, we're starting to run out of time, and there's one other thing I wanted to talk about because whenever our online group mentions this, there's like instantly 100 comments, and that is tea. And before I quit drinking, you could not have got me to stop my shopping cart in the tea aisle, period. And now <laughs> I love tea, and I, you know, I, I love my – I have a special mug – and I just I look forward to when that cup of tea is made in the evening. That's my you know my my slippers are on and my feet are up. I love my tea, and that that palette has started to transfer the, <laughs> some of the subtleties of all of what I used to think were the most boring, wimpy, annoying uh-huh. drink on earth. I now start to appreciate. Uh-huh. Um, do, are you guys tea lovers? Has this is phenomenon reaching all of you? Ellie, yeah, <laughs> love it. It's, and Ellie, is it the preparation and the selection and all of that does it does that transfer the ritual definitely is part of it um Mm -hmm. but i also and only an alcoholic or addict will understand the mentality behind this i think but that um that there's different teas that quote unquote do different things to you i will never be able to let go of the fact that i want to ingest something that changes my state of mind (laughs) so i love is it tazo or tazo t-a-z-o there's and then a, it um, says right on the box. It calm, <laughs> it's it's calm. It's called calm. It's C A L M, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I can drink something. It's gonna make me calm. But damn, if it doesn't make me calm to the point where I almost fall asleep. And then there's like the St. John's Wort called Blues Away. And there's only so I taste different teas with different palates that are um, they actually do have like herbal sort of homeopathic qualities to them that help my anxiety. They help my insomnia. They help my you know, so it's more than just the ritual of preparing it. It's the idea that there are um, safe ways to help my sort of biological, neuro- neurobiological response to a drink. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, in rehab, this is a funny little aside, um, I was in detox and with like, you know, a bunch of people that were, there was sort of like two or three that were older alcoholics like me and then a bunch of kids between 18 and 22 who were hardcore drug addicts and we, um, I went and asked them if they had the calm tea. You had to get it behind the nurse's station because it was so <laughs> potent as like a sleep-inducing thing that they wouldn't have it out for the you know the inpatients to just have unlimited access to it. And so I was having a calm tea every night and falling asleep within 20 minutes. And mm-hmm. so all these drug addicts, these hardcore like you know heroin drug addicts, were going out there and asking for this Tezo tea <laughs> to take because it helps with insomnia. And it's totally safe. There's nothing, it's not addictive, it's not anything, but it, it quenches that urge that I have in my brain to alter my brain chemistry. Which yeah. never quite, I mean, maybe this is a bad thing, I don't know, but it works for me. I like that <laughs> part of it. Well, we have is an that, upcoming episode on, on self-medicating. <laughs> it is, but it's, it's not, you know, unsafe. And so, you know, when, if my husband's having a beer to relax and I'm having my calm tea, I feel like, yeah, you know, hey, I got my thing, you know. What my daughter-in-law is expecting right now, and there's a lot of teas that she can't have um, because of all the herbal properties in them. So um, there, it's it's actually surprising. Some of the, I mean, they're safe, but they can have side effects. So they can, um, and they can interact also with antidepressants, or if you're on chemotherapy. I mean, you do have to ask your doctor about those things. It's definitely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. true, but yeah, it's also there's no narcotic. Um, they do not travel along the same pathways in your brain that anything like alcohol or drugs do. It's a different. Right. It's not a narcotic, but it definitely affects your biochemistry. Um, Julie, so I have one. the wrong answer. I don't know. Maybe I'm encouraging people to go OD on calm chamomile tea. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. It helps with my insomnia big time. Well, I quite love the the passion tea. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to like warn my husband when I drink a cup of that now because. You've made me realize that there's a direct connection. No, call me, Jean. If you're having six cups of passion tea a night, you can call me. We'll, we'll okay. talk about it. We'll talk. <laughs> Off the air. I feel like an intervention. <laughs> I know that we're running out of time, but I, I just have a quick question that I wanted to toss out to you guys, too. This is Ellie still. Um, when one of the questions that comes up a lot on our online board is when somebody um, – oh, my God, I'm going to lose my turn of thought all of a sudden – Oh, when you're not drinking and you don't have access to a mocktail or some other, you know, concoction of your choice, how do you say, I'm not drinking or no thanks or, you know, because it's such a big, important issue. Do you guys have staple things that you say to deflect a drink? If someone comes up and offers you a glass of wine or says, you know, what would you like to drink? We hear people that might say, you know, I'm on antibiotics, I'm not drinking tonight, or I'm the driver. What are your staple sort of one-liners to deflect people who are offering you drinks? This is Julie. Um, Right away, my head goes to when I enter a room, I get myself a drink immediately so that I have something in hand. Um, But secondly, I will just say, you know, uh, the kids are at home. I may be called away at any time. I'm driving, but thanks so much. Mhm. You know, I, it's I have I have an exit strategy which is always blamed on the children. God bless their little souls. Um, but you know, my friends probably think they're all jerks because they're always apparently the reason I leave. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, say if you say anything about uh, medication or just having an early morning appointment or just not in the mood for it. See, not in the mood for it to me. 
has always allowed a person to be like, oh, come on. Yeah. And so I kind of try yeah, to I try to negate that. Yeah. I've gotten um, more comfortable with just this is Jean, and I say, um, uh, no, thank you, I don't drink, but I would love a whatever, um, you know, or yeah. I would I would kill for a, a plain tonic water, and because what I find is people like to be good hosts, so the person that's exactly. offering you whether it's a paid staff person or the host of a party, they want to be a good host. And and they, we have trained people that the way to be a good host is to be generous with alcohol. So if you mm-hmm. say what you want, and you, if you're shy about coming out and saying you don't drink, that's okay. You could just say, I'm not drinking tonight, because that's true. I'm not drinking tonight, but I would really love blah, blah, blah. Can you help me find one? And I love that. That's yeah, it, it's and then they, you know what I find? Then people kind of look out for me. Are you still okay? Do you want to, you know? And um, that's that's made me comfortable because it allowed me to mm-hmm. let that other person off the hook a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're including them, right? You're you're being inclusive rather yeah. than saying go away, go away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because then they haven't done their job. They haven't made you happy. They're going to keep after right. you. They want to bring you something. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, Julie, this is my Amanda my Go ahead, Amanda. I was going to say, the um, I, I mentioned earlier, it's only happened to me once where I've had someone, like, pressure me when I've said no thank you or um, something, and I had actually it was had gone to a bar before a concert, so it was, you know, no room, and my friends were sitting at the bar, and we had gotten there late, and, you know, we had to muscle our way through, and the bartender came over, and um, I had pointed to my friends because I was with a, a friend of mine and said, you know, she'll have one of those. And he immediately turned away and wanted to get two for me and my, my friend. Um, and so I had to stop him and say, hey, get back here. I said, I'll take a cranberry and uh, soda water. And he said, and he was like, what, no booze? And, you know, really loud and boisterous. And, and, I, and I was like, no, thank you. I said, no, no booze. And my friend just jumped, piped up and goes, she's had her share. And he was like, oh, okay. And, he, <laughs> and so that's ever since then, that's been my line. You know, I, if, if pressed, I just say I have, I've had my share. And it, it, because it, without, it, it makes the, um, the bartender chuckle usually. And mm-hmm. it and in such a way, it's it's said very lightly. It so it, I just it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. And it, well, I don't feel uncomfortable. Period. But uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's just it's a it's just a very light way for them to um, you know get the hint, not keep asking me because the other thing too is and people have said this to me my whole life. I, you know, you look take one look at me and I have party girl running across my forehead. So people don't believe me when I say I'm not drinking. <laughs> yeah, I get that time and again. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you do. <laughs> well, and that that's to our point, too, that life doesn't stop when you quit drinking and you you will not cease to be fun. You will still have fun. You will still enjoy life. And it seems we feel like we're going to be in mourning forever if we if we give up. Drinking. I, I know I certainly thought that way, that I would never be fun again. And I sure want to encourage any listener that's that's muddling over that thought, uh, listen to these ladies. There is a lot of wonderful things waiting for you, and uh, and you'll remember them the next day, which is great. <laughs> yes. Even better. Bonus. Mm-hmm. Without remorse, right? 
That's right. So we're getting towards the end of our time. Julie, I have one last question for you, and I, I meant to ask this earlier. Pantry staples, are there things that we should have in our cupboards or try to keep on hand as kind of the basics that, that will uh, make sure we always have something on hand we can put together? Sure. I would recommend keep sparkling water on hand, any juice that you like, and something that matches it in a citrus, for example, a lemon or lime. I personally always keep mint and lime available, and mint and lime will go with sparkling water with almost any juice. If you like, if you are a wine drinker, check out pomegranate. Keep pomegranate juice on hand to throw together um, as a, an actual pantry tool. I keep a muddler available, which you can use the backside of a spoon as well for the. The idea is that you mash um, in a cup. You would mash a bit of lime and potentially mint together, and it just releases the flavors. So, Julie, when you uh, say mint, you mean fresh mint leaves, right? Yeah, sorry, fresh mint leaves. Okay. Um, Now, other people like to have spices to add to their drinks. I don't. (laughs) I just have a pretty basic palate, I think. But the biggest things for me is have a couple fresh fruits, maybe some frozen berries in the fridge, and some sparkling water. And you're set for anybody's taste at that point. Well, that's great. Well, there has been a lot of good information tonight. So I, I yes, hope that our you. listeners are feeling encouraged and uh, and enlightened and have some ideas for their next outing or maybe their next gathering as host or as a guest. Um, I, I know that when I, when I was in early recovery, I really mourned the loss of wine. And I, I thought nothing could ever take its place. So I want to encourage listeners if you feel that way, the alcohol with obsession does start to fade away. Your mind and your heart and your palate do eventually become interested in other pleasures and other comforts of, of many varieties. And and the world opens up to you again as, as uh, the importance of alcohol starts to fade behind you. Um, I want to thank you, Julie Elton-Height, for being our guest this evening. Um, please, everyone, check out SoberJulie.com. While you're there, order a copy or two of Mocktails and More. Not, maybe get one for yourself, but also get one for your friends so that they know what the heck to make you when you come to visit. It's a beautiful book with awesome photography, too. It's great. It's, it's so good. Very good. And, Julie, thank, thank you, you so much. I hope you'll come and see us again or come and chat with us again on the Bubble Hour. Oh, thank you, ladies, so much for having me. It's such a joy to be with you. And uh, anytime. Great, Julie. Thank you so much, Julie. And thank you to Ellie and Amanda tonight. Catherine is sick at home tonight, so Catherine, we hope you're better soon. I also want to give a quick shout-out to a couple listeners. I know Deb is on vacation and is struggling, uh, so hang in there, Deb. Hope we gave you some good ideas tonight. I also want to give a quick shout-out to a listener by the name of Susan who wrote to me this week and um, was was finding it a, a rough time and said the bubble hour was helping her. And we just want to send out a hug to you ladies and to all our listeners and to one another. So as we close the show tonight, we want to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all the resources, including the Bubble Hour, as well as the blog Crying Out Now, and links to some other initiatives that we are involved in around recovery advocacy. If you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly, and you can also follow the link, and please subscribe to our podcast. 
So on behalf of Amanda and Ellie and myself, Jean, we thank you for listening to the Bubble Hour, and we hope you all have a great evening. Good night, everyone. Good night, Jean. Good night, Good night Julie. Good night, Amanda. Good night. Good night.